Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure you're in fellowship, ready to uh, study the word. As we live in the Christian life, we're to live on the basis of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. But when we sin, that is lost, and we recover it simply through confession of sin. So we have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to study your word and to recognize that, that as God the Holy Spirit has led us through the understanding of your word, we know that we are standing upon the shoulders of many who have gone before us, and we are so thankful for their guidance, their direction, for the way in which they have uh, supported your word and defended its inerrancy and infallibility. And, Father, we are so thankful that as we continue this study that we come to understand that history is not something that is comprised of accidents, but that you oversee history, guide and direct it towards a future culmination, a future goal that uh, culminates in your glorification among all of your creatures, among your angels, among mankind. And, Father, as we continue our study, we pray that you would help us to see how we fit in as individual believers in the church age and how your plan for us is distinct from all other uh, dispensations and all other uh, groups of those who are saved at other periods of time. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're still looking at the doctrine of the rapture. Still focusing on what the Bible teaches about the rapture. Now, for a lot of us who've grown up in dispensational teaching churches and haven't been exposed much to what goes on outside of dispensational churches, we are the minority. I mean, we are an oppressed minority. We are the whipping child of everybody who holds a different view. In fact, there was a, uh, as we, we know from our study, that one of the consequences of dispensationalism is an understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church, and that God has a plan and purpose for Israel based upon the unconditional covenants of the Old Testament. And there are many people who are not uh, self, I'm going to call them self-conscious, consistent dispensationalism. But they hold to many dispensational distinctives, even though they may not be uh, well-versed in theology. And one of those principles that you see held by many Americans is the importance of Israel. And last week I pointed out that at a meeting 
there was a news report and at a meeting of a of a group that was uh, supposed purpose was to support Christians in the Middle East that Ted Cruz was the keynote speaker and Ted Cruz uh, uh, came out talking about the importance of supporting Christians and supporting Israel because those who are antagonistic to Christians are also antagonistic to to Israel and he received a lot of pushback from uh, Arab Christians who were in the audience and this is typical because the as I pointed out Thursday night when I talked about this, that this is so typical of people who hold to replacement theology, and they don't understand these distinctions. When you get into some areas of the world that have, quote, Christian populations, they're not biblical Christians. They're not, their Christianity is not based on a consistent understanding of biblical truth. They're they're sort of cultural denominational type Christians, and they may never emphasize the gospel or regeneration or the importance of personal individual faith in Christ. And so they're, they're Christians in name only. And, and then you have another group of Christians that you have in the United States and evangelicals as well. They come out of a different tradition, and about 20% of evangelicals in the U.S. are not uh, are, are not out of a background that emphasizes a consistent literal hermeneutic and a, therefore a distinction between Israel and the church, and that's usually among Reformed churches. I got an, all of that to say I got an email this morning, and the title was The Cruisification of America. A little play on Ted Cruz's name, and it was written by uh, an advocate of Reformed theology, and he's going after Ted Cruz and how horrible everything was that he said because this comes from this kind of a, uh, what he calls a false view of Christianity. So this battle is very real, and it impacts what's out there in terms of what happens in the political sphere and what you can read about in the papers every now and then. So I'm going to continue tonight talking about what the Bible says is related to the purposes of the uh, tribulation and how we understand that that means that the church is not present in the tribulation. And that that is important for establishing a why we believe that a rapture occurs before the tribulation and also the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Here's our basic dispensational chart, Old Testament ages of the Gentiles in Israel, the uh, Age of something is off a little bit, Bruce, in terms of Bruce back there or Eddie. In terms of the perspective, I haven't seen this before, but that's not showing the whole chart. It's been, it's cut down somehow. It misses the whole dispensation of perfect environment on the left. It's happening on both of them, so I don't know what's causing that. What? Hmm? Nope. No? Nothing changed. I don't know. I'm not going to worry with it right now. Okay, so we have uh, the dispensation of perfect environment, conscious, and human government in the uh, age of the Gentiles, and then the dispensation of patriarchs and the Mosaic law and the Messianic age during the age of Israel, which ends at the cross, and then the church age begins at the day of Pentecost. We've got that transition period between the cross and Pentecost, 50 days. So the church age ends with the rapture, and the tribulation begins, as we'll see from Daniel chapter 9, 
uh, verses uh, 23 and following, that the, that the tribulation begins with the signing of this covenant between the prince who is to come and Israel. There's a gap. We don't know how long that gap is, but there's at least one precedent we can point to of a gap between the cross and Pentecost. So there are these transition periods that occur in between these these dispensations. So I'm looking at the topic of why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And uh, last time I talked about the second point was the purposes for the tribulation do not relate to the church. So I covered this So in just quick review that the purpose of the tribulation is to execute judgment on wicked nations who have rejected Christ. Uh, the purpose shows the inability of Satan to rule the planet. Uh, the purpose for the tribulation is to provide time for millions to be saved. God's grace is very much present during the tribulation period. A host without numbers depicted in Revelation chapter 7 before the throne of God. So there will be innumerable people who are saved and I think that many of them will be saved because of tracts, because of things that are on the Internet. Uh, the ministries, uh, so many ministries have material up on the Internet that will all be here after the rapture occurs. And I think that there will be a number of people. It's at that time, not long after the uh, tribulation begins, that 144,000 Jews are saved. That's not the limit of Jews that are saved. Some people teach that or have taught that, or at least that misinformation is out there, that that's what Christians believe. There will be 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes saved who go forth as evangelists, and many millions more will be saved as a result of them uh, being saved. Uh, So there are millions who are saved, and then uh, Israel, through their ministry, will be prepared uh, to receive the Messiah and his kingdom. So the, also we see during this time that it's a prep, time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion. It's specifically related to Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Uh, the church currently expresses uh, tribulations and will not experience the tribulation. And the church is mentioned 19 times in Revelation 1 to 3, but in chapters 4 through 19, the church is not mentioned at all. That's the period of the tribulation. So it's various names are used uh, emphasizing the Jewish nature. Uh, It's time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It's a time of judgment on Israel, according to Ezekiel 20, uh, 37. It's a time for Daniel's people, judgment on Daniel's people in Daniel 12, 1. This is the period described as Daniel's 70th week, which we'll get into, I hope, before too much longer. Okay. Um, third point we looked at was that the church is never the object of the wrath of God, so God is not focusing on this. A couple of the main passages were 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 1, 10, Revelation 3, 9 through 10. And then we get this term, uh, the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21, and I described that last time that this time of great tribulation is not talking, it's not a technical term, I don't believe, for the second half of the tribulation, but it is a specific term for uh, the increased adversity, the increased horrors of the second half of the tribulation. And that brought us up to the next point, the fourth point, where I stopped last time, at the imminency of the rapture. Imminency is an important doctrine. This is almost a cornerstone for the rapture. In fact, there are some people who 
uh, will think that this is the strongest argument for the rapture. I think everybody has their favorite view, and this is certainly a strong one. Uh, we have to understand what imminence means. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, something is imminent is if it is hanging overhead, if it's constantly ready to befall or overtake one, if it could take place at any moment, it is at hand. Uh, it could. There's nothing that is required to take place before this takes place. It is. Um, it is very very close, but not necessarily in time. It's. You always have to be ready for it. So what we learn about uh, the the coming of Christ for the church is that it's certain He is coming. It the time when it will take place though is uncertain. And then the third thing is that it is not contingent upon anything else. Sometimes we, I, I've emphasized this again because it's sort of a corrective for some of the way we've been taught, the idea that no prophecy is going to take place, is going to be fulfilled before the rapture occurs. That is not a true statement. There's prophecy related to the, to the rapture, there's, which shows that nothing must take place in order for the rapture to take place. It's not contingent upon anything. There's no event that must transpire in order for the rapture to take place. That's why it's imminent. There's nothing between now and the rapture that must be there. But that doesn't mean that some prophecy couldn't be fulfilled that relates to things afterwards, setting things up for what will take place following the tribulation. Uh, Clarence Larkin, who wrote a book in, that came out in 1916, 1917, called Dispensational Truth. Some of you have read it. It's a classic on dispensationalism. Clarence Larkin believed that if the rapture had occurred in his day, that 70 or 80 years would have to go by before the, rat, before the tribulation could begin because so many things had to take place to set things up. A, a temple would have to be rebuilt. Jews would have to be regathered to the land. A nation would have to be established. Many other things that he felt needed to be in place before the tribulation could begin. His opinion a 100 years ago was that if the rapture had occurred in his day, 60 or 70 years would be necessary to make the transition before the tribulation could begin. Today we've seen many of those things take place. Some, some people believe that the, the return of the Jews, so many Jews in unbelief, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Others would say, well, we won't use that terminology, but it is clearly uh, prophetically significant. But whatever we say, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the timing of the rapture. That's the important point. The rapture is not contingent upon these things happening, happening first. This was the belief in the early church that the coming of Christ was imminent. It could take place at any time. Here's a quote from Clement. Clement of Rome was a pastor in Rome the last part of the first century, and he wrote an, a, a letter, an epistle to the Corinthian church, and he wrote in that letter, of a truth soon and suddenly shall his, shall his will be accomplished, as the scripture also bears witness, saying, speedily will he come and will not tarry. And the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One for whom ye look. And now, Clement is writing probably before the canon is closed. 
very close to the end of the first century, but not before the closing of the canon. His life uh, overlapped the end of the apostolic period, so sometime in the 80s or early 90s was when he wrote this, and he believed that that Jesus could return for the church just at, at, at any moment. It was speedily. It could be very quick. He expected it as Paul did, as many of the writers of Scripture did, that it would take place in their lifetime. Now, Ignatius was born, I believe, before the end of the first century, but Ignatius uh, reaches maturity in the early part of the first century, and he is uh, taken to Rome as a prisoner, and on his way he wrote various uh, letters to various churches, and so these would be dated somewhere around 120, 130. So now we're in the early part of the second century. And he said, The last times are come upon us. Let us therefore be of reverent spirit and fear the long suffering of God that it tend not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come or show regard for the grace which is at present displayed one of two things. Now, this reveals the fact that he's thinking that the, the end times are imminent, that the, the time of, uh, of, of judgment is, is upon them, the last times. Irenaeus lived a little bit later into the midpoint of the second century, around 150, 160. He battled a number of different problems that were taking place within the church, and one of his more famous work is called Against Heresies. And that he writes, and therefore when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said, there shall be tribulation such as has never been since the beginning, neither shall be. And so his use of the term suddenly caught up indicates that it's something that is unexpected, it's something that is quick, it's something that is imminent. It is not dependent or contingent upon uh, any other events. So there are a number of key passages to understand uh, this discussion about imminency in the Scripture. One of these is in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. As James is coming to the end of his epistle, closing out with his conclusion, he returns to the theme of the epistle, which is on endurance and patience in times of trial. And so again, he encourages his readers to be patient, to be steadfast, waiting upon the coming of the Lord. So he says, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He's not, he doesn't see anything else uh, in, uh, coming in between his time and the coming of the Lord. That's the next thing that's anticipated. That's why we believe that that we're waiting for Jesus Christ, not for something else. We're not waiting for the appearance of the Antichrist. We're not waiting for uh, the appearance of the 144,000. We're not waiting for any of those events that take place in the tribulation. The next thing in the prophetic timetable that we're looking for is the coming of Christ. So he indicates that. He writes from that perspective, uses illustrations of the uh, of, of uh, agriculture. And in verse 8 he says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, there's a reward promised to those who love his appearing, who look forward to his coming. And as believers, we should uh, anticipate that. Some of us anticipate it a little too much sometimes, but um, I think as, as people grow older, they yearn for heaven. I see, many, see this in many Christians as they, as they mature that they realize how 
fleeting this life is and how permanent eternity is going to be. What we look for is the coming of the Lord. It is at hand. It is near. It is, and, and that shows their view of imminency. It could happen any time. What's, 1900 years has gone by since, since he wrote this. But he anticipated that it would take place in his, in his lifetime. First Thessalonians 1.10 is another of these important verses. Paul says that we wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, he writes this in a first-person plural. We are waiting, he's telling the Thessalonian readers, as if Jesus is going to come during their lifetime. They're expecting it to happen at any moment. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he says to the Corinthians, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if they thought that a lot of things had to take place before he could come, why would they eagerly be waiting for it? See, they expected it at any moment. It was very real to them. Jesus coming is around the corner. We just don't know when it will take place, but it will be very soon. That's what they believed. It was imminent. They weren't waiting for other things to take place take place first. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we eagerly wait for the coming of the Lord? Is that something that is part of your consciousness as a believer, every single day that you are eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord. If we're supposed to be living today in light of eternity, if we're supposed to be thinking about how we live each day and our priorities each day and our mental attitude each day and our focus each day in terms of how we're going to do at the judgment seat of Christ in preparation for eternity, then we should be waiting eagerly. This should be a present consciousness in our mind that Jesus can come at any moment. And are we ready? Are we focused on the right priorities? Are we living our life in terms of eternity? Are we living our life? It's so easy in our world to get caught up in living our life for today, for tomorrow, to pay the bills at the end of the month, to get that next job promotion, to get new cars, to get whatever the things are in life, to, to reach retirement, to... Uh, get a place where we can build a retirement home for the future. Whatever it might be, we're focused on the things now, and are we focused on them in terms of the present? Are we focused on the things now only as insofar as they relate to our destiny at the judgment seat of Christ? We are to eagerly wait for our Savior. First Thessalonians 4.15, another verse where, which we've gone over in this section on the rapture many times, Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that is, Jesus taught it as well. What passage was that where Jesus taught this? John 14, 1 through 3. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. See, notice who he says, we who are alive and remain. All through this epistle, when he uses the word we, he's talking about the people that he is talking. He's not using this in some broad editorial sense, thinking, well, this includes all Christians down through the next 2,000 years. He's talking to those Thessalonian believers that he knew personally, and he says, we who are alive and remain, expecting that he's in that rapture generation. 
And there have been many believers because of their sense of expectancy down through the generations who think that they were in the raptured generation, but were not. So that's the, that's the focal point there. Paul comforts them because he's, he's sees the nearness of Christ's return. And there's no uh, hint of anything that intervenes between his present time and the coming of the Lord. So he's not looking for something else. Titus 2.13, we're looking for the blessed hope. We're not looking for the rapture. We're not looking for some other event. We are looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. So we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha, meaning may the Lord come. And so he's, he's emphasizing here the importance of anticipating the arrival of the Lord. Uh, Revelation uh, 13, 11, I mean, excuse me, Romans 13, 11. Nothing in Revelation about the rapture except for Re- Revelation 4, 1. Romans 13, 11. And this do, knowing that the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. That is, each day we're closer, whether it's going to be our physical death or the rapture, each day we're closer to that time when we're going to be face-to-face with the Lord. And in verse 12, he says, The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Do we, have, do we live with this sense of immediacy that at any moment Jesus is going to come back and that we need to be prepared? So that's where he concludes in terms of behavioral challenges in verses 13 and 14, that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there's going to be accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's not put there as fear to scare people into obedience, but a realization of reality that we will be held accountable and we need to live in light of that future. Philippians 4, 5, Paul says, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Constantly, he's right around the corner. 1 John 2, 28 and 29 says, Now, little children, abide in him. That is, stay in fellowship. Walk with the Lord. Walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Walk in the light. Walk in the truth. Let your, uh, he says, uh, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. There are going to be believers who shrink away in shame when Jesus comes back because they are not prepared. They are the ones who will not have any anything rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ, no gold, silver, and precious stones. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears at the rapture, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on himself purifies himself. What is he talking about here? If you understand the rapture, you understand its significance, 
then you're going to cleanse yourself. That's the concept there in purification. It's 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. So he says, if you understand that future expectation, if you understand that hope that we have, that confident expectation that Jesus is coming, what should characterize us? Then daily we purify ourselves. We are confessing our sins, we're staying in fellowship in order to be prepared for his appearance. So that takes us through the doctrine of imminency, the doctrine of imminency. Now I want to get into this fifth point, which talks about the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. There are a lot of people who think that these passages that talk about his appearing, his coming, they think in general terms, And so they say, well, these are all just talking about Jesus' second coming, when he returns to the earth. If you hold to an amillennial view of uh, of theology, then there's no future future tribulation. There's no rapture. We're living in the kingdom. It's a spiritual form of the kingdom. Jesus is up there in heaven on, on David's throne in heaven right now, and he just returns to the earth at the end of the age. There'll be a judgment, and then we go into uh, eternity. There's no future kingdom, according to their view. So for them, all of these passages relate to the same same event. They don't understand, and they don't uh, believe in these particular distinctions. So what we're going to point out here in this section is that the Bible describes different characteristics for Jesus' coming, and they can only be explained under the idea that there are two different times in which Jesus comes. Uh, the second coming is sometimes referred to in, in books uh, to apply to both, that it has two stages. Stage one is the rapture, which occurs before the tribulation, and stage two is when Jesus comes all the way to the earth. And that's a fine and important distinction. Jesus comes first to take and remove believers from the earth, in order to fulfill the time of judgment, and it's a purification of the earth in preparation for his kingdom to bring Israel to that point of belief and acceptance in him as Messiah. So we're going to draw out these distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. At the rapture, the rapture passages, as we've studied in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, talk about a translation of believers who are alive. They are immediately uh, translated from this mortal, physical, corruptible body into an immortal, uh, spiritual body, a resurrection body. And it takes place instantly, as we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 15 and following. It takes place in the uh, blinking of an eye, literally less than that, the twinkling of an eye. But at the second coming, there's no mention of a translation of believers at all. There's none of that. It, it's, it's completely different. What we see the second coming is Jesus coming already with an army with him. They're already there. Revelation 19 mentions nothing about anybody coming up and joining him. He comes from heaven with this army uh, accompanying him already, an army of angels and an army of resurrected saints are already there. Second point, according to the rapture, translated saints... Back up, let me try. There we go. Translated saints go to heaven. Translated saints go to heaven. 
we go with the Lord. We saw this in our study of John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I go, uh, I will certainly come again, that where I am you may be also, which is heaven. So translated saints go to heaven. When the rapture occurs, we don't come to the earth with Jesus. We go to heaven with Jesus. But at the second coming, translated saints return to the earth with Jesus. So the destiny of, of translated saints is different in the, each view. Rapture, we go to heaven. Second coming, we come to the earth. Third, the earth is not judged at the rapture. When you look at the rapture passages, they are not accompanied by verses that describe a judgment upon the earth. But when the tribulation occurs, I mean, excuse me, when the second coming occurs, there's judgment associated with that. At the end of Revelation chapter 19, we see that the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Satan is taken into, um, uh, is taken into the abyss where he is chained for a thousand years. There is a judgment that takes place there at the end of the tri- at the end of the tribulation with the second coming, but there's no mention of a judgment on the earth at the uh, time of the rapture. A fourth distinction that we see is that the rapture is imminent. It could occur at any moment. There's no sign. There's no prophecy. There's nothing upon which it's contingent. But the second coming follows a definite pattern. There are predicted signs. There are things to watch for. There's a thing, and it'll come up again, I think, next month. Uh, we're on the edge of the Jewish High Holy Days, and I believe that we're going to see another couple of blood moons. And John Hagee was the one who popularized that erroneous view uh, about the blood moons having something to do with the future of Israel. If you want to hear the critique, you can go back, and that's a special that's on the Dean Bible website. So there's no sign. There's a definite set order. The moon turns red like blood. It does. Not What we're seeing now is not that. And the sun is darkened. So these things happen at the same time. It's not just something that happens with the moon. And there are many other signs that take place, and you can follow them through the book of Revelation, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. The rapture, we say we believe, is a church-related issue. It's not predicted in the Old Testament. There's nothing in the Old Testament that predicts the rapture. Now, I'm going to show that one of the strongest passages, I believe, for the rapture is in the Old Testament, but it's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about God's plan for Israel. But the implication is that if those last seven years in Daniel's 70-week prophecy, if those last seven years relate to Israel, then where did the church go? There's no place for the church at that particular time. So it's not predicted. The rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament. But the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord passages are predicted again and again and again throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Amos and many, many other passages in the Old Testament. So it's predicted many times. They anticipate it. The reason the rapture is not mentioned is because the rapture has to do with the church. And there's no prediction of the church in the Old Testament. The church isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. So we would not expect the rapture to be predicted there. The rapture is for believers only. It is only for those who are in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. It's only for church-age believers, not Old Testament saints. 
So it's the dead in Christ rise first, but at the second coming, this affects all of mankind. It ends the tribulation period. There are judgments associated with his coming, the judgments, as I mentioned a minute ago, of the Antichrist, the false prophet, but also judgments of Gentile unbelievers who survived the tribulation and Jewish unbelievers who survived the tribulation. And there's a judgment upon Satan and the demons as well. So everybody's affected by the second coming, whereas the only people who are impacted by the rapture directly would be church-age believers. The rapture takes place before the day of wrath. We are saved from the wrath to come. And the wrath to come begins with the first series of seal judgments, as I pointed out last time in Romans 6, talking about the wrath of the Lamb. We can't fall into the trap of the so-called pre-wrath rapture view that the wrath of God is only a term for what happens in the final bold judgments. That, that's a misconstrued scripture completely. The wrath of God begins at the beginning of the tribulation period. The second coming of Christ concludes the day of wrath. So they are separated by the tribulation period, which is the time of God's wrath and the pouring out of his judgment upon the earth. In re- reference to, those, to Satan, there's no mention. Satan is not mentioned at all in any of the rapture passages, no indication. It has nothing to do with Satan, where is when Jesus returns at the second coming, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Again, a major distinction between the two views. The ninth distinction is that in the rapture, Christ comes for his own. He comes for us. He comes for the church. At the second coming, Christ comes with his own. He comes for the bride at the rapture. He comes with his bride at the uh, second coming. At the rapture, Christ, the tenth point, Christ comes in the air. He doesn't come to the earth. He comes in the clouds. We, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with him in the air. He comes only in the clouds. He doesn't come all the way to the earth, whereas at the second coming, he comes all the way to the earth and engages in various uh, battles to destroy the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. At the rapture, he, as I indicated earlier, he claims his bride, but his bride comes with him at the second coming. So this is an important distinction. Uh, at the rapture, only his own see him. That's why some people call it a sort of a secret rapture. It's not that secret. Everybody's going to feel the impact of it. When all the believers are taken out of the earth, they're, they're going to be missed. Some of them are going to be driving cars, some flying airplanes. Others will be in important key positions as captains of industry, as uh, military leaders, as political leaders, and their absence will create a crisis I believe, of leadership at that particular time. When the rapture occurs, it sets the stage, and after the rapture, the tribulation begins. After the second coming, the messianic kingdom begins. It's an important distinction uh, between the two. And so we see that the rapture uh, is covered in that last period uh, of uh, seventh week, Daniel's 70th week, uh, starting from the time that the coming prince signs that uh, peace treaty with Israel and ends with the return of Christ, and it is in the future. 
this relates to Daniel's 70th week. Now, this is one of the most important um, passages to understand and one of the most important prophecies to understand. And so I've got about 20 minutes left. I think I can cover this. So we need to look at this. This is a remarkable prophecy. I think of all the prophecies that I've taught about and studied that have been fulfilled, this is one that is the most detailed and the most extraordinary passage for it gives us a timetable for God's future plan. And as we see here, I'm just going to use this slide to give us an overview. Daniel, uh, just to summarize what happens in Daniel chapter 9, you might want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 9.24 as we go through this particular passage. But earlier in that chapter, Daniel is found praying, and he has been meditating upon Scripture. He's been meditating upon prophecies and promises that are in uh, the book of Jeremiah, specifically in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, and in Jeremiah 29, 10, predicting that this judgment that God brought upon Israel where he removed them from the land would last for only 70 years. Now, Daniel can count. And he knows that these 70 years are just about over with. So he prays to God that he would at this time restore the people to the land. And he comes before God and he confesses their sins of idolatry, their sins of, of, of uh, disobedience to him, disobedience to the law. And he is functioning like a priest as an intercessor for his people praying this prayer, and he calls upon God to deliver them. And God answers his prayer in a remarkable way and sends an angel to him in order to uh, explain what God's future plan will be uh, for him. And so this prophecy uh, that begins in Daniel uh, chapter uh, 9, verse uh, 24, we see a prelude to, to that in verse 20. Uh, Daniel says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So he's been praying all day. He's still in the middle of prayer. And right in the middle, he's interrupted by Gabriel, who informs him that he has come in order to give him this, the skill that he's asked for and the understanding of, of prophecy. So this sets up uh, this particular prophecy. So Daniel wanted information about the end of the Babylonian captivity and God gave him an answer that extends all the way to the second coming. It is a timetable for Israel. That's so important to understand. It is for Daniel's people. At the first verse, uh, God, uh, God says, or Gabriel tells Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who's that? Israel, not the church. And your city, that's Jerusalem. So Dan, Daniel wanted this information, and God gives him this remarkable timetable. And the subject is Israel, not the church. So important to understand that. All right, we'll get an overview. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish, and then we have uh, six purposes given. 
finish transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal of vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. So it's 490 years are determined. This gives us the, the total framework. Then in verse 25, focuses on the first part, the first 69 weeks. Then verse 26 talks about this gap between the 69th week when the, uh, the Messiah is cut off and there's this gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. Now, that's really important to pay attention to that gap It's because it doesn't tell us how long that gap is, but it clearly establishes that gap. And so uh, then we are introduced to the 70th week, which is described in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 27. Now, in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. We'll talk about the purposes here in just a minute. In verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild, that tells us the starting point. When do we hit the start button on the stopwatch? The start button is when this decree goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And from that point, it's not from the point of Daniel's getting this revelation. It's not from the point of their uh, rebuilding of the temple. It's when there's a political decree to allow the Jews to go back to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So I'll tell you this. It's not related to just the decree to go back. It has to do specifically with restoring and rebuilding, and those terms have to do with building a military fortification so that the city is defensible. Uh, so from the issuing of that decree until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And so when we look at that and multiply that out, uh, we see that this comes to uh, 400. Or we add them together, 7 and 62. Uh, we get 69 weeks, and this comes out to uh, 69 weeks times 7, it comes out to 173,880 days when you work out the whole, the whole prophecy related to years. We'll get into the mathematics of this in just a minute. After the 62 weeks, so you had the seven-week period, which is roughly 49 years, and then you have the 62-week period, and then after that, the Messiah is cut off and has nothing. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this can't be, it's not talking about what happened in 586 because that's already in the past. So it's looking at the next time. It indicates a second temple will be rebuilt, and that second temple will be destroyed by a, in a military attack, and the people who do that, the prince of the, that, those people, are the ones who will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's what occurred in A.D. 70, when Rome, uh, under uh, under Titus, as the general of the Roman army, destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the temple. And Daniel uh, or Gabriel then says its end will come with a flood. It will be overwhelming, and even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Ze- Zechariah talks about how Jerusalem is always going to be a millstone around the neck of the nations. I mean, this is just something that is a perennial problem, and we see that again and again and again uh, in the news, the fights over who controls Jerusalem, who owns Jerusalem. 
Are we going to go back to the 1967 borders and, and basically split Jerusalem? And what happens if we go back to the 67 borders is that everything historically that has been known about Israel, I mean about Jerusalem, goes to the Arabs. When you look at a map and you see the line that, that for the 67 borders, remember up until the early part of the 20th century, Jerusalem wasn't very large. It was mostly the old city up until the late 19th century. Uh, there was no settlement outside the walls of Jerusalem. So East Jerusalem is the old city. That's what the battle is all about. East Jerusalem isn't what's east of the old city. East Jerusalem is the old city. It's, it's, it's that whole historical area. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, and when we go on our trip to Israel, we drive along, we see the road that, where, that was a barricade where they had the, uh, the border before 1967. And before 1967, Jews and Christians were limited in their access to any of the holy sites, any of the historical sites in the old city because of Arab control. And so this is one of the things that will probably happen again if if they were to give up control. And that's why Israel said that they're not going to do that. So according to our chronology here, uh, this is going to be a constant state of war that will go on into the future. And then in verse 27, he that is the prince who is to come uh, will make a firm covenant with the many of one for one week, that is one seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, this is where we get that term, the abomination of desolation. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the one who makes desolate is the Antichrist, the prince who is to come. And there will be a complete destruction of him at the end of this period. So this is the focal point, is understanding these uh, 70 weeks that have been uh, prophesied. So let's look at the chronology. What do we mean by 70 weeks? Literally, in the Hebrew, this refers to 70 units of seven weeks. It's Literally, it says 70 periods of seven. So 70 times seven is 490. That could be 490 days, 490 weeks, 490 months, uh, or 490 years. Well, it doesn't fit days, weeks, or months. It only fits if you lay this out over a period of years. So 70 times 7 equals 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. From that starting point of a decree, a political decree for some for the Jews to return to rebuild the military defenses of Jerusalem. Why 490 years? 490 years is a multiple of seven. The argument is that according to Leviticus 26, 34 to 35 and verse 43, that every seventh year was a sabbatical year that was to be observed by the Jews that they failed to do that, and so for a uh, period of years, um, of the years that they failed to do that, this was why they had to spend 70 years in captivity to make up for the 70 sabbatical years that they had violated. Now, we don't know which ones those were because there's no historical record. There were some times when apparently they did provide 
uh, for an attempt to observe the sabbatical years, but not all. And so most of the time they did not observe those sabbatical years. So for those 70 years that the land was not allowed to rest, they're going to be put in captivity for 70 years. This is the argument of Jeremiah 25:11 and 29:10, and so the the context is talking about this 70 uh, 70 year period, this unit of 70, and so it's multiplied times seven to give the number of sabbatical years that are remaining for Israel's timeline. Now here are the passages. Jeremiah 25:11. This whole God says this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah 25, 12. Then it will be when 70 years are complete, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation. In Jeremiah 29, 10, that says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. So that was that 70-year period. Now we're going to take that same unit of measurement and we're going to apply it to the future. Now there are six things that are mentioned to finish the transgression, that is, Israel's rejection of God, their idolatry. So this rebellion of Israel is going to be complete. This isn't talking about the cross. This is talking about bringing their sin to an end, to make an end of sin. All of these purposes are related to Israel, not to mankind, not to the church, to make an end of sin, to atone for iniquity, to deal with this uh, for Israel finally and totally. Uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness. See, this event occurs for all six of these purposes are fulfilled. So everlasting righteousness isn't brought in until Christ returns. So it's at that return of Christ specifically for Israel that these things are realized in Israel's experience. Fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. All of these prophecies related to this will, will, will be fulfilled and this will will introduce the age of the Messiah, the millennial kingdom, and to anoint the most holy place and establishing a new temple, which will be the millennial temple that's de- that's described in Ezekiel chapters uh, forty and following. So uh, this is what we see em- emphasized at this time. So in the first sixty nine weeks. Uh, we just have to look for the starting point. Now, there are four decrees that take place in relationship to Israel. Here they are up on the screen. The first is a decree of Cyrus that we can date to October the 29th of 539 B.C. It's mentioned in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, and Ezra 5:13. This is the decree for, it, the, for the Jews to return to the land. This takes place in 539 B.C. Then there's a decree of Darius, that occurs in 519 or 518, uh, described in Ezra 6, 1 through 12, which authorizes them to go ahead and finish rebuilding the temple. doesn't have anything to do with fortification. Then there's a decree of Artaxerxes uh, Longomanus to Ezra. Again, it's taking a group of Jews back to the land from, uh, from Persia. And then the fourth decree that's significant is the decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus, same Artaxerxes. This is the uh, um, Artaxerxes gives this decree to Nehemiah to uh, restore the city walls and gates. And see, this is what is described in verse 25. The street shall be built again and the wall, 
even in troublesome or maybe even even for troublesome times. So it has to do with the defenses of the city. So this decree we can date to March the 5th of 444 B.C. That's, that's pretty impressive that we can do that. So it begins at that point, and then it ends historically when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. On March the 30th of A.D. 33, which is four days before the crucifixion, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, according to Luke 21, 38 to 45. Now, there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week of at least... Um, there's a gap of at least 37 years between the end of the 69th week, which is the cutoff uh, when the Messiah is crucified, and the beginning of the 70th week. How, how do we know that? In this gap, two specific things take place. First of all, the death of the Messiah. It takes the, the Messiah is cut off after the 69th week, and that occurred four days after the 69 weeks ended on April the 3rd of AD 33 and he will have nothing. The second event that has to take place in this gap occurs, like I said, 37 years later, from AD 33 in the crucifixion to the destruction of the temple in 70. And so the temple's destroyed in 70. Those two things have to take place in this gap. After that, it's uncertain how long the gap is. Now, when we get to verse 27, we see that one week of years remains. Is this past or is it future? Now, preterists, now that's a term to describe theologians who believe that all this prophecy in Daniel's 70th week, uh, the Olivet Discourse, everything that occurs between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19, all of that was just symbolic code language for the destruction of Rome. And so all of that was fulfilled in the past. The word preterist means past. They think that all this prophecy that we think is future occurred in the past. So there's, as uh, we'll get into this later, but there are three views of prophecy. One is that all this occurred in the past. One is it's kind of occurring now in the present. That's called the historicist view. And then there's the futurist view, and we hold to the futurist view. So we believe that uh, this occurred earlier. So there's a no-gap view, that there's really no gap and everything's already been fulfilled, and then we have the gap view. And we believe that there's a gap, and we're still in the gap, before the 70th week takes place. So here we get to our timeline. The decree to restore takes place March the 5th, 444 B.C., with Artaxerxes' decree. So we have our... 7 plus 62 equals 69 weeks. And after that, Messiah the Prince is cut off. On March the 30th, A.D. 33, there's a triumphal entry of of, uh, Jesus into Jerusalem. This is 173,880 days after uh, Artaxerxes' decree. So the 70 times 7 equals 490 years. The 69 times 7 equals 483 years, or 173,883 days. I lost that last part there. Let me rebuild the slide real quick. The point is, where's the last seven years? Where's the last seven years? Now, how do we understand these years? There's synonymous terms or parallel terms used in different prophetic passages. 
Daniel 9.27 refers to half of this 70th week as a half of a week. It's referred to also as a time, one, times, two, so that gives you three, and a half a time, three and a half. So that works out three and a half, that's half of seven. It's also called 1,260 days in Revelation 12.6 and 11.3. That 1,260 days is also described in Revelation 11.2 and 13.5 as 42 months. So 42 months is the equivalent of 1,260 days. That's the equivalent of a time times a half a time. So that means that according to God's prophetic calendar, a month is 30 days. We have a calendar where we have uh, five months or six months with 31 days. We have one month with 28 days to even everything out. But according to the the Jewish calendar, which operated on a lunar calendar, a year was 360 days, not 365 days, and each month was 30 days. So we have to figure this according to a Jewish concept of a linear calendar. So 69 times 7 times 360 days comes out to 173,880 days. From March 5th, 444 B.C., to March 30th, A.D. 33, is 173,880 days. You can verify this by taking 444 B.C. and adding uh, to that uh, 33, which would be 477, but then you subtract a year because there's no zero, and that gives you 476 years. 476 years times our calendar, 365 and a quarter days equals 173,855 days plus the days between March the 5th and March the 30th is another 25 days and that comes to 173,880 days. It all gets worked out. And so it's remarkable the precision of God's timetable. So we have the 70 times 7 or 490 years, the 69 times 7, 483 years, and then we have to figure out what happens to the last seven years. So there's a gap, and it's after the 62 weeks, two things have to happen. Messiah's cut off and has nothing, and then the sanctuary is destroyed in 70 A.D. What happens then is there's this gap. You have the cross, Messiah's cut off, you have the destruction of the temple, but the gap continues until we get to the coming prince. And the coming prince will sign a treaty with Israel. He'll just—he's the the people of the prince who is to come destroy the city. That's the Romans. So that means the future prince is going to be coming from where? Babylon. No, Rome. Right? It was Romans who destroyed the city. So the future can you you hear a lot of stuff today? Joel Rosenberg's big on this Muslim Arab Antichrist. I don't get it. We've got to have Bible scholars who can just read the text. Now, they have an argument for that. They argue that, see, the people, the legions that were used by, by um, Vespasian came from the eastern part of the empire. But it's a Roman, they were considered Romans, and they considered themselves to be Roman. So this future time period is that 70th week that is unfulfilled. The first part was for Israel. The last part is for Israel, not for the church. Okay? There. One last thing. 
Daniel 9.27 presupposes three things, a Roman prince and a Jewish nation. So in order for the start of the 70th week to occur, you've got to have a new political organization with the rise of this powerful political figure who then is going to sign a covenant with Israel, which means there has to be a nation, a government, a people of Israel in the land. So you can't have the tribulation start without at least uh, those two things and probably the Jewish temple, although it's possible that the temple doesn't begin construction until after this covenant is signed. Uh, the temple doesn't have to be finished. Remember, when Jesus was on the earth, the temp- Herod's, Herod's revision our rebuilding of the Zerubbabel temple wasn't completed. It wasn't completed until about 46 A.D., and so, so all, all it has to do be is sanctified. They can put a mobile home up there, kind of like the tabernacle. It's sanctified. They can have sacrifices, and it's sufficient. So we see that this focuses on Israel. The years that have already been fulfilled were fulfilled literally. That means that the future must be understood and interpreted on the same basis as the past, uh, as the past fulfillment. So this will take place. Here's a picture in the lower screen of the last remaining, uh, portion of the restraining wall known as the, as the Western Wall. Okay. I'm going to stop here. We'll review that a little bit next time and then we'll go forward. But I believe that this is one of the strongest arguments for the rapture. But it's really, it's an argument that the church won't be present, that the tribulation is for Israel, it's not for the church. And therefore, if it's not for the church, the church doesn't need to be here, and it will be removed. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to go through these things and to understand the scope and plan of prophecy. Father, we understand that you have a plan for the church, you have a plan for Israel. Right now, Israel is apostate. But there are many Jews that come to Christ, come to an understanding of the Messiah, believe, read and believe the prophecies of the Old Testament, especially passages like Isaiah 53, and understand that they can only have been fulfilled in one person, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. Father, we pray for many of our friends who are Jews, that they would come to a faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would come to understand the truth about who he is, and what he's provided for them, and that you can use us in many ways to bring a clear understanding of the gospel to them. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.